what he said was increasing espionage and sabotage by Ukraine and the West. Mr Putin instructed the FSB to strengthen security in territories occupied by Russia in eastern Ukraine. The BBC's Danny Eberhard reports. The FSB is the main successor to the KGB that Vladimir Putin himself served. There was nothing secret about his speech. It was televised, an exercise in political messaging, projecting control. The agency, Mr Putin said, had to build a wall against what he called sabotage groups entering occupied Ukraine, areas he claims are now Russian. No doubt mindful of attacks like the one on the Crimean Bridge, he instructed agents to keep a close eye on infrastructure. There were warnings over internal security too, designed to chill wider dissent. Mr Putin said units deployed at the border must stop sabotage groups and prevent the passage of illegal weapons and ammunition. A British woman has been jailed for seven years after being found guilty of faking a medical degree certificate and working as an unqualified psychiatrist for more than two decades. A court in Manchester heard how Jolia Alemi had treated people across Britain and had the power to detain mental health patients against their will. Detective Superintendent Matthew Scott led the investigation. I think it casts a shadow over all of the decent, qualified, good doctors and medics throughout the UK. I just think that this woman has sold a lie and has lived that lie and I think potentially, in my opinion, has believed that lie herself at some point. And Canadian singer The Weeknd has made music history, becoming the first artist to hit 100 million monthly listeners on the streaming service Spotify. The star is well ahead of other big-name acts like Miley Cyrus with just over 82 million. Born in Toronto to Ethiopian immigrants, the singer, also known as Abel Tesfe, has become one of the biggest music stars after launching his career on YouTube in 2010. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Money Talk. Well, hello and a very warm welcome to you. I'm Richard Harris and this is Money Talk. It's mask-free day in Hong Kong today. I, I feel quite naked this morning. Anyway, I can breathe free, freely. And any fellow Welshmen and women out there, it's the 1st of March and David's Day, the patron saint of Wales. I wish you dith gwil derry happies. Happy St David's Day. Well, forgive my pronunciation. Anyway, let me give you your business news headlines for today. Stocks generally drop February after a good January. On overnight, Wall Street was slightly down as Europe gave up early gains. Bonds fall, meaning that interest rates have gone up slightly in the month. Investors did little overnight as they wait for a key reserve Federal Reserve meeting tomorrow. And in a few minutes, we'll have the Australian GDP figures and see how the economy is doing down under. On Money Talk today, we're joined by Stuart Orcroft, who's my go-to man on the Asian fund management industry. And he's joined by RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. And then after the news at 9.30 on our new elongated show, Colin Wright will be joined by Mark Ballock from Resonance Asia, to look at the business of attracting and retaining top talent. He's a headhunter to you and I. Then we hook Barry Wood back in at 10 tonight to talk about his view on the US markets, economics and politics. And for those of you who'd like to hear all our great guests again, as well as podcasts of all of our other programs, don't forget to download the great RTHK app, RTHK On The Go. It's free, and that's the best value you're likely to get from a business program. 
That's email moneytalk at rthk.hk and on Facebook where Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Well, it's been a month of ups and downs in the markets as the battle between interest rates, inflation and economic growth continues. After strong January, stocks retreated in February as economic data and comments from the US Federal Reserve prompted market participants to reconsider the odds the central bank would hike rates to a higher level and for longer. Some of them, like the weakness in Hong Kong and strength in Europe, were surprising. It's showing that e- economies are not in sync with each other. And investors now worried that interest rates will remain high for an extended period of time. The S&P 500 dropped in February by 2.26%, and on Tuesday it fell in the last session after fluctuating for most of the day. The S&P ended at 3,973, down 0.2%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 3.7% for the month. Last night it was also weak, down 0.7 to 32,655. The Nasdaq 100 had the monthly decline of 1.2%, declining two months in a row, but yesterday it ended down just 0.1% to 11,456. The UK FTSE bucked the trend, up 0.43% in a month, down 0.7% to 7,876. And the Euro stocks 50 was also up. Uh, it was up 1.4% in the month. Strong performances from Italy, Spain and France. But yesterday, European equities gave up early gains, however, to trade slightly lower on the day, down 0.2% to 4,238. Japan was up to 0.23% in the month and up 0.1% on the day to 27,446. So Japan's holding up. But the Hang Seng Index uh, had a torrid time down just under 13% in the month. It's actually the worst performing major market by some way. And why Hong Kong was down so much? We're going to ask our guests. Our benchmark Hang Seng Index fell 0.8%. Shanghai Composite was... Uh, 0.45% up on the month and the China index rose 0.6% yesterday. The Bloomberg dollar spot index which measures the greenback against a basket of six peer currencies fell 0.3%. The euro is printing 1.058 against the US dollar. The British pound is trading at 1.2. Sterling gained a bit after rising 1% on Monday as the UK and the UK, UK and the EU reached a deal on post-Brexit trading rules. Hong Kong dollars trading at $9.45 to the pound. Japanese yen rose to touch 1.36 yen to the dollar. And the renminbi, uh, Chinese yuan, is trading at uh, 6.94 kwai to the buck. Bonds, the yield on 10-year treasuries ticked up to 3.93%. But Britain's 10-year yield actually fell slightly to 3.82% on cheer about the Brexit deal with Europe. In the commodities market, Brent crude is ticking up. It's currently $83.9 a barrel. Um, been moving up a little bit, so keep an eye on that. Uh, however, in monthly terms, it posted its fourth straight monthly loss. Gold futures rose half a percent to $1,833 an ounce. Money talk on RTHK. Ryan, let's have some news now. The U.S. Commerce Department has imposed new rules on beneficiaries of 39 billion uh, of their program of 39 billion to provide computer chip makers with U.S. federal funds. They're hoping to put investment in to build a leading-edge U.S. semiconductor industry. 
But the rules are quite strict. They've been barred from expanding in China for 10 years. Another strings attached is that the money can't be used to share buybacks or dividend payments. And companies even have to outline in advance how they would provide affordable childcare for workers. Economic growth and inflation data from Australia is due very shortly, uh, I think on the half hour. Last month, the Reserve Bank of Australia raised rates, uh, a move which surprised those who'd been expecting a pause in the bank's tightening cycle. That's prompted fears of a slowdown and even recession. Catherine Birch, who's the senior economist at uh, ANZ Research, said she expects GDP to have risen 1.1% in Q4, taking the annual growth in Australia to 3%. We think that the RBA is going to be concentrating on a few key things in this release. One, household consumption. Um, RBA is quite keen to see how the rate rises so far are influencing the household sector, but we think that will still be pretty solid in Q4, given this shift from more retail spending to more services spending like travel and entertainment. Two, we think the RBA will be focused on some of the inflation indicators in this release as well. So we get the equivalent of PCE inflation for Australia today. Um, And again, we think that's going to come in quite strong. Uh, And then three, we also get a different wages measure in the national accounts as well, average earnings per hour. We think that'll come in about four and a half percent. So well above the WPI print of 3.3%. All those combined together, if it comes in as we expect, will suggest that the RBA still has more work to do. Well, that's Catherine Birch at uh, ANZ Research in Australia. Uh, Other news, uh, FWD Forward posted strong growth in 2022, uh, new business up 29% year on year. The Hong Kong-based insurer said it was well positioned to take advantage of Asian opportunities. On the property side, uh, Centerline founder Shou Wing Ching says it's not a good time for investors to buy property because the recent rebound in the market may be temporary and primarily driven by rigid demand. He also warned that the government's cooling measures that were put in some time ago may not be sustainable in the long term. Home prices have rebounded from last year's lows by about 3 to 5%, but any further increase will depend on whether the economic environment improves and if other measures such as the reopened borders can bring benefits. Property transactions in 16 major Chinese cities surged 32% month-on-month in February. That surge helped bring year-on-year decline down to 7.6%. Turnover in first-year cities increased 5% on a monthly basis. So a little bit more optimism, at least in the property markets. Well, let's have a chat at our great guest this morning. First of all, Stuart Orcroft, who's uh, an Asian fund management industry consultant and, and, as I said, my go-to man on funds. And Barry Wood, who's my go-to man on economics. He's the RTHK International Economics Correspondent, and he's in Washington. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Richard, and welcome back. Thank you. And uh, you Yes, too. indeed. Good morning. Uh, it's nice to be wanted. Uh, anyway, uh, I've got to ask Stuart this first because uh, it surprised me. February was a bad month for the Hong Kong market, down 13%, especially at the time when we all thought that we might get some revenge spending from COVID, you know, opening of the borders, that sort of thing. Have you got any ideas why? <laughs> well, I wish I knew everything for you, uh, on, on this, Richard. You know, part of the problem, I guess, is that um, after the market reached its bottom at the end of October last year, uh, it, it 
it came up very sharply in uh, November, December, January, and we saw a very strong rise in the market, and people were making a lot of money. So February was a natural opportunity for a lot of people just to take profits, and they did. Um, remember that at the end of January we had an early Chinese New Year, and so a lot of people had got out of the market before that. But uh, throughout February there was a lot of profit taking, and all the good news that we were seeing in the pr prior three months seemed to evaporate. Um, and, and, and clearly, what we also saw during that time period was um, a bit of a slump in in a number of the. Uh, mainland China stocks listed on the Hong Kong exchange. Uh, b bear in mind, you know, for example, that the Hang Seng Index is now more than 70% representative of China stocks rather than uh, pure Hong Kong stocks. So it, it's very likely that uh, any, any movement from China will more greatly affect the Hang Seng Index than, than um, would be the case if it were Hong Kong stocks that were doing Yes, yeah, China had a bit of a so-so month with Shanghai Composite um, pretty well flat. Um, it, it does seem to be what you're saying. I mean, the, Hong Kong was up 19% in January, down 13% in February. So there's obviously a lot of uh, volatility in there. And also it's quite well known that these seasonal factors can, can have quite a difference. And Chinese New Year very often uh, is one of those times where we do see those seasonal factors come in. Yes, it is. Um, you know, Chinese New Year is a, is a very quiet time uh, for people there on holiday throughout our, our region. Um, and it's a, it's a long holiday. It's over one week for most people. And so that just stopped activity, frankly. Um, but coming back in February, as uh, February uh, was the start of the new year, um, Many people just took a negative view, I think, in the market and uh, started selling, and the, and the selling carried on throughout the month. There were little opportunities uh, uh, um, uh, and, and some positive uh, movements sometimes in the mornings, but then they all petered out in the afternoons, and, and that seemed to be the pattern of the month, frankly. Yes, well, I mean, maybe other markets might go down, but it might make Hong Kong a little bit more resilient, perhaps, uh, uh, as we go further into the... I think the, Hong uh, Kong's a little bit ahead of some of the other markets. But, um, uh, and, you know, I think one of the things that I found particularly interesting yesterday, for example, um, we had the announcement of the masks being removed. So what, what do we see? We see um, um, a local cosmetics manufacturer shares bounce upwards very sharply. Um, because of the view that no masks means more makeup. <laughs> well, that I know, is super. I, 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 I know in my case, I, I think I'll certainly need this. Maybe some wrinkle, you, wrinkle cream might you, be helpful. You'll, you'll use the makeup, will you? <laughs> That's right. Well, Barry, I can hear you chuckling into the background. Of course, you haven't been wearing masks for uh, for years. But I think there's, there's actually a, a, a more serious point here, is that it looks as if economies aren't really very much in sync. You know, we've got Hong Kong down a lot. We've got Europe surprisingly up. Uh, we've got the U US maybe uh, treading water a little bit. It looks like global economies aren't really moving um, in lockstep at the moment. Well, that's true. No doubt about it. Look, I think um, if I could just start by commending Stuart, let's look at the United Kingdom. Isn't it extraordinary that the London Stock Exchange is at a record high that is amazing. Five years after Brexit and all of the pessimism that we've talked so much about. 
So, indeed, Richard, that's one counterfactual. I mean, it is a good time to be investing in Europe, I guess particularly in Britain, but not so in the United States. I do have one idea to throw out about the United States market, because it had a very good January after a disastrous uh, 2022. Let's not forget that that was the worst stock market performance in the United States in 14 years, a true bear market, really. But I think the investment community got ahead of itself. They thought that economic growth was going to slow. Therefore, the Federal Reserve would have to pause and that the interest rate rise, the cycle that we're in, would be obfuscated sometime early this year. Well, it hasn't happened. Mm. And I think that explains some of the sell-off we've had in February. Yeah, and I think, Barry, you know, you and I have talked on this program over the last year or two about how interest rates have been flat. And then now, in the last six or nine months, we've been talking about how the Fed will increase rates. I still am of the view that many market commentators are underestimating how high the Fed will raise interest rates in the U.S., it may only be at a, uh, 25 basis points a time, but I still think that there's probably quite a lot more upside in interest rates in the U.S. than the market is giving credit for. And that, uh, as it happens, will start to impinge on, uh, on the markets themselves. You must think this is, this is the case, uh, Stuart and Barry. I mean, for instance, France yesterday announced inflation 7.2%. Spain, 6.1%. These are the highest inflation rates since those countries came into the Eurozone, indeed since the Eurozone was, was, was created. We really are in a situation where inflation's pretty high with a lot of hopes that it's going to go down to 2%. Yeah, this is true, but, but I mean, the causes of inflation need to be looked at as well. And, and certainly, I mean, I'm not going to take credit, Barry, by the way, for the strong performance of the UK. Well, market. I know that was a little <laughs> bit indirect, but I... You I didn't mention that the pound was as weak positive as... About you. Yeah, but, but <laughs> I thought I, I would. Stuart. Yeah, Stuart's been selling the pound. To, to, to that, I have to say, but... <laughs> um, but, I do, but I do think, you know, one of the, one of the issues, certainly the UK market has benefited from the weak pound. The weak pound has, uh, has uh, you know, caused the uh, very high number of exporters, because that's what the UK stock market is made up of, uh, to benefit quite considerably. Um, but, of course, we also know, uh, and this is applicable throughout Europe, that the uh, Russia-Ukraine war has really restricted how things will develop in the European markets, mainly through the very high price of oil and, uh, and attempts to try to uh, cap off Russia's influence uh, across the market. And I think this is where we're going to see... Uh, uh, there's, a, there's, a there's a positive underlying here, because if oil prices can come down at some point, for whatever reason, then there is a very real opportunity that the markets could go ahead very sharply. Yeah, I would add to that, if, if I may, that um, all of the pessimism in 2022 when the Ukraine war started about Europe, which seemed at the first three to four months of the year absolutely justified, 
natural gas prices skyrocketed up five, six times. Yep. Well, yep. they've all retreated. They're, they're down to pre-Ukraine war prices. So all of the pessimism on Europe in terms of COVID, in terms of inflation, in terms of the war and its impact, it's not as bad as had been feared. And I think that explains a lot of why Europe has been doing better than anyone expected. But I think and I would just add in terms of Hong Kong, look, yes, Stuart, your prices and the exchange there are all related to these Chinese equities. But at the same time, you've got a currency that is linked to the United States dollar and interest rates that are determined by the Federal Reserve. So that's a factor, too, that I, I would guess must have something to do with the decline in February. Yes, I agree with you. Um, now, uh, Jeds, I think the market has a tendency to really focus on one narrative at a time. Maybe it's just got a sort of very uh, small mind. And we have been focusing on, uh, oh, well, maybe inflation is coming down. OK, people are ignoring the fact that it's coming down from double digits to uh, a lower figure. But at the same time, we've got all these counter... Uh, arguments going against it. We've got inflation, we've got interest rates. What's the debate there? People have thought they haven't really been going up. We've had actually reasonable amounts of growth. You know, we're pretty well looking at trend growth. So the markets are saying, well, you know, if you've got trend growth, that's fine. Earnings haven't been too bad. And the consumer's been relatively buoyant. Now, if you put all of those together, like the four legs of a table, where do you think we're actually going to be going? I mean, which is the narrative that's going to be coming through, say, in the next three months? Well, I th I, unfortunately, I think that the problem is that we're in an era um, where volatility will be more extreme than we've seen for a long time. And so, yes, we're going to see upward markets. Yes, we're going to see downward markets. And it's, it's the... Or oh, indeed, they might go flat. <laughs> well, uh, if you're sitting, if you were sitting on the first of January, looking at the market going forward, you would probably see a relatively flat movement by the end of this year. But during the course of the year, I think we could see quite a lot of upside movement, quite a lot of downside movement, and then we have to overlook the fact that. Uh, We've got geopolitical tensions out there, which can also impact markets. I mean, we're not talking just about Russia, Ukraine. We're talking about China and the United States. We're talking about uh, oil prices and uh, all of these uh, uh, and inflation. Uh, and so all of these have impact on the market. And if they all come together and all, all come out as a positive, then we could see the markets roar ahead. But of course, each one of them could actually um, cause damage to the market on the downside. Well, that, that's right. Very often we have very sharp downsides, uh, yet on the upside the markets climb a wall of worry. I mean, I have to say, Barry, I think the inflation is too high. I think it's going to be tough to get down. So interest rates have to go higher for longer. How much is this going to impact the real economy, Main Street, people in their homes with higher costs, maybe losing jobs? Isn't that good? Well, you're already seeing it in the used car market. Uh, you know, they, prices soared last year, but they've come down. So, Richard, I think the trend is down. That, that's the important thing. I know both you and Stuart are of the view that U.S. interest rates are going to go higher than many expect. And I don't disagree with that. But I would say that the inflation trend line 
is clearly down. It's not going to get to 2%, but it might get to 3% sometime in 2024. I think uh, growth is probably going to be better in the United States than the 0.9% that is being predicted. And in Europe, uh, it's probably going to be better than the 1% expected. Let's not forget, with China coming back on stream globally, if you're an optimist and if some of the dreadful scenarios that Stuart outlined do not come to pass, we could get a kind of boom as things move towards normality. Is there danger that we're all hoping China's going to come back on stream, you know, that the and there's, there's pretty confident the government is going to want to stimulate the economy post-COVID. But we haven't seen this flood of money coming in yet, which is something that certainly I was expecting earlier in the year. Yeah, there is an underlying um, wall where that money is being stored at the moment. Um, I, I, let me just take the example of uh, in Hong Kong. If I took mutual fund sales as, as just a proxy for the market, mutual fund sales in uh, 2022 were at $42 billion US. $46 billion, sorry, US. But that was down over 50% from the figure that in, in 2021. That said, a very large proportion of that money um, was into um, uh, managed or equity funds. But nevertheless, bank deposit rates, uh, or numbers, I should say, rose very sharply. There is still a very large... Um, wall of money that is just being held on deposits of banks and ready to be invested, but without the confidence of investors to place that money into the market. So I think that that is what we are looking at. That's for the Hong Kong market. Barry, I'm sure, will have a fairly similar story for the U.S. market. Well, maybe the well, story... Well, that's true. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with everything you just said, uh, Stuart. But just look at uh, the lack of foreign direct investment going into China from the United States. That's a down number. Yep. And I think there's a lot of money on the sidelines that would like to come in. But you've got those geopolitical elements that you mentioned. And so you've got a kind of war in the United States between the business community on the one hand and the politicians, Democrats and Republicans agree, that be tough on China on the other. I don't think the result of that is going to be known for several months. Mm. Well, gentlemen, thanks very much for that, and we appreciate your conversation. That's Stuart Allcroft, our usual Wednesday guest. Uh, he's a consultant in the Asian fund management industry, and Barry Wood of, is the RTHK International Economics Correspondent. Um, just a few quick look at the futures, not doing much this morning. Most of them are down, with the exception of the Cosby, which is up a little bit. And then still to come in the second half, Carolyn Wright will be speaking to a headhunter, Mark Ballack, about talent. And we'll be joining Barry a bit later. Quick word on the weather. Fine, warm and dry during the day. Currently 17 degrees and the relative humidity is 79%. Now the news read by Vicky Wong. Hong Kong people are able to go out without masks for the first time in more than two and a half years today. But a professor of medicine says that the end of compulsory masking means it's more crucial than ever for people to keep their COVID immunisation up to date, as this prevents hospitalisation and death.
Big data analysis by the University of Hong Kong's Faculty of Medicine shows three jabs of either Sinovac or BioNTech reduced the COVID death rate for elderly patients by more than 95%. Professor Ian Wong heads the pharmacology department. In general, we see that the BioNTech is more effective than the Sinovac. However, there's one thing that's very important. We also noticed the demographic detail between the two groups are quite different. We found out that the more elderly uh, patients actually go for the Sinovac. More younger people actually go for the BioNTech. So that may also explain the slight difference between the two vaccinations. But the bottom line, the take-home message is both of them can actually prevent the serious outcomes, i.e. death or a severe disease from the COVID. The government announced yesterday that masks would be optional from today, while the hospital authority said mask rules will still be in place in its health facilities. President Putin has told Russia's Federal Security Service to intensify its activity against what he said was increasing espionage and sabotage by Ukraine and the West. Mr Putin instructed the FSB to strengthen security in territories occupied by Russia in eastern Ukraine. He said units deployed at the border must stop sabotage groups. He also claimed that Western intelligence agencies were increasingly active. We need to beef up our counterintelligence in general because Western special services have traditionally been very active in relation to Russia and now they have put in additional personnel, technical and other resources against us. We need to respond accordingly. A court in Russia has fined the U.S. organization that runs Wikipedia 27,000 U.S. dollars for what it calls failure to delete misinformation. Moscow has imposed tough restrictions on what can be printed about the war with Ukraine. Websites that are deemed to be breaching the Kremlin line are fined or blocked. President Biden's plan to give loan relief to millions of U.S. students is being challenged in the Supreme Court by six Republican-controlled states. The Republicans argue that he exceeded his powers. The administration authorized a program under a federal law known as the HEROES Act, which allows student loan debt relief during national emergencies. The BBC's Nomia Iqbal reports. More than 25 million people had applied for the program before applications were stopped last year. The court is hearing from six Republican-led states who say Mr Biden overstepped his executive authority by using the COVID pandemic to pause student debt and then push the programs through. They also think wiping away debt will contribute to inflation and punish those who never went to university. The court, which has a conservative majority, will rule in the summer. If it kills the plan, the Biden administration hasn't indicated if it's exploring other options. The UN's nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, says it has asked Iran to explain the origin of highly enriched uranium particles it discovered at an Iranian plant recently. In a report seen by the BBC, the agency said the particles were enriched up to 83.7% purity. Weapons-grade uranium is 90%. The BBC's Bethany Bell reports. The particles were found earlier this year at the Fordo nuclear site, which is dug into a mountain. The report said Iran had informed the agency that unintended fluctuations in enrichment levels may have occurred. Discussions with Iran to clarify the matter are ongoing. A British woman has been jailed for seven years after being found guilty of faking a medical degree certificate and working as an unqualified psychiatrist for more than two decades. A court in Manchester heard how Jolia Alemi had treated people across Britain and had the power to detain mental health patients against their will. Detective Superintendent Matthew Scott led the investigation. I think it casts 
a shadow over all of the decent, qualified, good doctors and medics throughout the UK. I just think that this woman has sold a lie and has lived that lie, and I think potentially, in my opinion, has believed that lie herself at some point. And the head of the World Health Organization has pledged to fully support Turkey's government in its response to the recent earthquakes. During a visit to some of the hardest-hit areas, Dr Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus described the situation described the destruction as heartbreaking and said the health situation in camps for those left homeless was a key priority. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Money Talk. Well, welcome back to Money Talk. It's Richard Harris taking you through to the second half of the show. And in a few minutes, Barry will be back, Barry Wood, to discuss the Supreme Court challenge to US President Joe Biden's plan to give loan relief to millions of students. I wish they'd had that when I was a student. But first, we have a brand new segment for you in the second part of the show. It's entitled Your Money. And in the studio, I have Carolyn Wright, who's joined by Mark Ballock, Managing Director of Residence Asia, and they're going to be taking a look at recruiting top talent here in Hong Kong. Well, good morning, Richard, and good morning, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. Hong Kong's government has been pretty keen on the idea of attracting the best talent to the city with its top talent pass scheme launched at the end of last year. So, Mark, let's delve into attracting talent. What are the smart employers doing to get the right people? Thank you, Caroline, and thank you, Richard, for having me. What a pleasure to be here. Um, actually, the industry of talent leadership is a multi-billion dollar industry, and I think in terms of interest, it has attracted actually the big companies from McKinsey to Bain and BCG to enter the space of assessments and leadership to create the best potential of their CEOs and employees. So love to speak with you about that today. Yeah, well, that's interesting that these big names are, are getting involved. Does this mean it's getting a kind of crowded space out there to, to headhunt for the best people? Yeah, it puts a lot of pressure on our industry. I actually love to define our industry more as talent scouts and talent enablers than actually recruiters or headhunters. But for sure, uh, the pressure is on. And I think generic driven type of companies will be forced to leave the sector. OK, so let's turn things around and have a look at why it's so important for companies to make sure that they're attracting the top talent. What are the, what are the benefits to them of, of going through agencies to do this? Well, we can all agree, and I think when Barry and the uh, contributor before were speaking about the business climate, this is the most complex of times to be in business nowadays. And in fact, for a business, you need to have the best employees to be productive, innovative and stayed afloat in this market. Hence the need to select not just good, but really outstanding talent. And is there a lot of competition around the region? You know, uh, is, is Hong Kong a really great hotbed for talent or, or sh are, do companies need to look outside or should they be looking at home? Um, fascinating question because we, we effectively have started an office in Tokyo as well as in Singapore. So we see trends actually quite topically from, from all these employer points of views. And I have to say, there is a huge demand for top talent, especially when you drive 
consumer-centric, customer-centric industry behavior. So in that sense, digital technology and operational type of roles. Uh, actually, if you go today on e-financial careers, about 40% to 50% of the roles are connected to tech, ops, and digital. It shows you that simply a, a sales background or a normal lawyer degree may not just make it anymore. So people need more skills, is what you're saying here, is, isn't it? So are, are they getting those skills? Do, do people who are, you know, in their university career at the moment need to think about this more carefully? Yeah, anyone who is using ChatGPT or, or Poe, Poe as, a, as an app shows you that just copy and paste routine-based jobs will vanish. And therefore, I think actually the educational sectors and also the companies have to offer talent and development type of strategies that make sure that the companies are being reskilled, employees are being reskilled and redeployed into areas where they can really, really show their potential. And companies also need to change themselves because, you know, the newer generations of, of employees are choosing the employers as well as the employers choose the talents. And therefore, if you are not a purpose-driven, inclusive and positive work culture-oriented company nowadays, you will have difficulty to attract good talent. So that also brings up the issue of retaining talent from what you're saying there, because, you know, in years gone by, I feel like people would take a job with a single company and they would probably stay there for some considerable amount of time. But now if the job doesn't seem like a good fit when, when they join, people will happily go, that's it, I'm quitting and moving on to a better opportunity. Yeah, it's a very contradictory market to, to some degree because you have, of course, um, those employees that are able to choose from lots of options. And you would know in your organization who these employees really are. But at the same time, we also see that employees kind of assess how did effectively the company treat me during the tough time. So there is some, to a degree, some stickiness and loyalty and also some risk aversions. Uh, the type of geopolitics, the type of inflationary risk and so forth makes people stick probably a bit more to those organizations that were kind and caring to them versus those that were promising disruption and, and probably don't keep, not keeping their promises. What about other sort of incentives, like once you've joined a company, sort of further training? Obviously, technology is developing at a crazy pace. Is, is that something that, uh, that businesses need to be working on more to keep people? Yeah, look, uh, our company, Residence Asia, has been actually really strongly focusing, but not only focusing on the insurance sector. And recently, we've been able to, for example, setting up a digital health insurance from scratch. And we were actually contacting people from Netflix, Disney, HBO, and so what. And they were all actually interested in this part of the industry. Why? Because it has a purpose. People also care more about mental health and about the well-being of their communities. And hence, actually, the insurance industry overall had attracted more candidates that you would be surprised of. Now, you, you clearly speak about the propositions. Yes, packages also included clearly better performance-orientated uh, compensation, like long-term incentives, stock options, and so forth. But also, in a sense, offering well-being, like one day a month off, to, to learn new traits and so forth, or spend time, birthdays 
offer their families. I think these perks are really important. Yeah, now I've been reading recently about companies, certainly in the UK, adopting a four-day working week. And that seems like quite an incredible incentive to me. <laughs> I would not like to ask my colleagues, actually. So let's see. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something you want to go for yet. Is, is that something you don't see happening no. over here in Hong Kong quite yet? Look, I, I think we all have to acknowledge that hybrid or remote to a degree is going to stay. And that means also that you need to level a level of trust to your employees need to be given to fulfill their duties in the time and the quality that they should take. But overall, I have to say also that, you know, it puts actually the employer on their toes in terms of making sure that culture is still there while people are being actually uh, working remotely. And and to a degree also, I think it makes sure that the employees uh, need to contribute besides just what is on the job description and f work with each other. So they, it's a sort of symbiosis between both parties, the employee and employer. And if getting, how much benefit is there to getting that right for companies? You know, can it help them with the kind of profits that they're making even? There is a distinct and clear uh, correlation between culture, productivity, innovation. Now, let me just simply uh, dial it down to you have effectively the best ideas, you have the best plans and strategies, you have the best ways of building, and you have the best way of making sure the standards are being met. When you have all these four being, being done by the best people, the output will be also the best for the consumer and for the employees. If you, however, lack in one degree or the other, uh, the type of the type of leadership, you may actually run into a problem. That's why I think diverse leadership and a meritocratic way of building your company's performance is so important. Great. So let's take a look now at your industry itself. When we started chatting, you talked about some very big names getting involved in this kind of talent scouting field. How healthy is is the field for you, the business landscape? Um. <laughs> You know, I, w I was actually with, uh, working with one of the big firms, Spencer Stewart, and uh, regionally in charge of the insurance sector. And, you know, jumping into the entrepreneurship myself was actually a big step. But I feel overall this, this has been the most amazing decision ever. And I tell you why. I feel companies actually don't want only brands anymore. They want authenticity. They don't want only the house you, they want an honest answer about what actually their own brand perception is and how they can actually improve. I, sorry, I'm German, tend to be quite a clear and transparent character. And that had actually been in this market where people were faced with difficult decisions, actually an asset. So for me, in, pers in, in my own background, I think, uh, it has been the right decision. But for overall, the industry, it puts a lot of pressure. I'll give you an example. I think most of the organizations have built out their own talent acquisition teams. And to a degree, what has been given to recruitment companies before can be done now automatically by LinkedIn or other ways. Now, the question is, what, why would you hire than us? It's exactly to getting those exceptional, strong talents into your organization. And that puts, again, a lot of pressure to not just know who is the best, but also to judge and assess and help the companies actually get 
these talents into their organizations. This is what I call our organization adding the art to the science or adding the science to the art of leadership advisory. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me today. Lots of great insights there from you, Mark. That's Mark Balog from Resonance Asia. Well, thank you both. And um, it's, it's great to see you. Uh, Mark, I'm just going to leave my CV on the desk outside. If you could just pick it up from there, I'd be very grateful. Well, we now have our final segment uh, of View from Washington, D.C., with Barry Wood, who's our very own RTHK international economics correspondent. Barry, you're still there? Yes, indeed, I am. Good. Uh, you can pass your CV over to Mark as well. You never know your luck. I know you're here in May, so uh, you can do your interviews then. Um, anyway, to get uh, back to work, uh, we've got a clip here that may interest you. President Biden's plan to give loan relief to millions of US students is being challenged in the Supreme Court. Uh, the president promised to cancel 430 billion US dollars worth of loans to millions of Americans. Americans owe an estimated 1.75 trillion in student loan debt. Uh, we've got a clip here. The BBC's Noma Iqbal has more details. It was his key, one of his key campaign promises to younger people that he would forgive student debt. Uh, and so if it's struck down, not only has he gone back on that promise in the eyes of uh, a lot of young people, and certainly the ones that I spoke to outside the Supreme Court last night, but also it sets this precedent where um, if... If the Supreme Court decides that uh, actually states that don't like any federal initiatives can challenge it, then then they could do that for any any federal initiative that President Biden has. Uh, but this ultimately the question that justices are being asked is, is forgiving student loans in the name of the pandemic an abuse of presidential power? So. Donald Trump's administration invoked an act back in March 2020 to pull student loan repayment requirements because of the pandemic. Biden did the same. It cost a lot of money. And now Biden is saying we're going to end the repayment pause, but we're going to forgive the debt that you have accumulated, depending on how much you earn, and especially for those people on grants for low-income families. So that is what's at the heart of the case. You've got, you've got Republican-led states challenging it. You've got two student loan borrowers challenging it, saying, well, this unfairly excludes us. So that's what the justices are looking at. We won't get a ruling, though, however, until the summer. So, Barry, student loans, it seems um, a rather unusual thing to really put your political reputation on, especially with an election coming up quite soon. You know, I think this is, uh, in one sense, not complicated. There are those in this country who believe in big government, that government can do pretty much anything, and that that will be helpful to the society at large. On the other side, Richard, is, is the sense of fairness. And also, as we've just heard in that report, this question of abuse of power. It has to do really with big money. We've forgotten, if we ever knew, a trillion dollars is a huge amount of money. You know, 50 years ago, I can remember a minority leader in the House of Representatives, Stuart, 
Dirksen, Everett Dirksen from Illinois. He said, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. Well, now we're talking about trillions. I know, and it's extraordinary, isn't it, how these, uh, these noughts have just added on the end. Yes. So, look, to come to this issue, does the Congress, that's where this country really started in, in 1787, the Congress is supposed to decide how the money is spent. Well, if you forgive debt, then that's the same thing as saying you're spending that money. And we're talking, as in that report, a huge amount of money, a half trillion dollars or even more, because the student debt figure is, is super high. 26 million people have applied for this kind of loan forgiveness. What does that say, Richard, to the several tens of thousands of people who worked very hard and saved to pay off their student debt oh, yeah, speaking before to one. this proposal was made? And I think this does become a question of fairness and a question of whether the executive in our system of government has the power to simply decree something instead of the Congress passing it. So is this, as they uh, say in politics, that just before an election, the largest, the longest suicide note in history? Well, it's 430 billion long suicide note in history politically. Well, yes. I mean, look, the United States has this colossal debt, but the average American just thinks, well, what's the problem? You know, you just roll it over. Now, as interest rates have gone up from exceedingly low levels, it won't be very long, months, not years, before people begin to notice that the federal government budget has such a large figure for debt service that that'll be a, an issue. But most people are saying, well, what's the problem? The dollar is strong. The dollar will remain the world currency forever. Most people on the other side of that will say, Oh, you can't say when, but if you continue to have deficits at this level, the United States dollar will not be number one. So, but, yeah, I think this is a huge issue. I'm glad it's gone to the Supreme Court. It won't have any result until probably June, but that's that's quite important. But the way that, uh, dare I say, President Trump, I wouldn't use the word stacked, but uh, selected a number of Republican Supreme Court judges seems to imply that it might actually be struck down in the Supreme Court. Well, don't forget, I mean, look, Donald Trump did several things through executive action. He ended all kinds of restrictions, regulations, environmental issues that prevented what he thought making American business competitive. So that was done through executive action. Now the president, President Biden, has done the same thing on this on this college student loan debt. But this is, this is a complex issue. I said it was an easy issue, but the mechanics are complex. <coughs> Sorry, we're coming into debt now, and the whole issue with debt. Um, and it's fairly well recorded. The Republican candidates actually have a, a worse uh, reputation, if you like, for increasing uh, the national debt. Um, 
So that seems to imply that actually the whole debt issue in the U.S. is not going to get any better. Well, you're right. Both parties are guilty. And, you know, I, I once was running on the Capitol Mall, you know, which was right outside the Voice of America building. And What a great place person, to run off. It, it's a great place to run. It's, what, two miles in length if you go all the way to the Lincoln Memorial from the Capitol. I did it once. The, I think my legs fell off. Uh, the, 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 the director of the management and budget was standing next to me, and we got to talking. And somehow the question of debt was our subject. And he said, you know, the American people won't deal with this issue of fiscal deficits and accumulating national debt until a two-by-four has struck them on the head, not unlike Pearl Harbor. Something that really gets their attention, like, say, the collapse of the currency. And regrettably, I think that there's truth to that. But isn't that, the, isn't that the same with, with any economies or, or any issue? You know, it's the, as we say here in Asia, it's the frog boiling in the water, boil it slowly. Well, that's true. Notice, you know, but this is a big is one. Would you not slowly. agree? This is a big one. It's bigger than some of the other issues. I mean, can you continually spend money you don't have? But isn't that what's happening elsewhere? The UK has spent enormous amounts of money. Uh, China spent a lot of money. The Japanese have got huge debt now compared to what they used to have. This is, well, this is a global issue. Richard, this is, this is an issue where it gets a little complicated. There is the question of domestic debt, and then there's the issue of balance of payments, which is the foreign factor. China and Japan are big creditors. They hold huge holdings of United States Treasury certificates, which is an obligation on the United States government. So you can mention those other countries, as you did, that they may have fiscal deficits, but in terms of their international balance of payments, they're surplus countries. Germany, historically, is a surplus country. The United States used to be, until the 1950s and 60s, a surplus country. We have now been a chronic deficit country. And there's a huge accumulation of our, of our treasury bills in foreign central banks. Yes, the other argument, of course, is that if you're bigger than the bank, you own the bank, as, as they say. And uh, if these countries have a huge amount of their assets in U.S. debt, and they have to because there's almost nowhere else to go for that kind of volume of cash, then they're kind of in hock to the U.S. just as much as the other way around. Well, that's true. Look, I don't disagree with that. But at some point, it might be the Chinese yuan, the renminbi. I mean, the China's made it very clear that they would like to have an alternative currency and maybe even a dominant global currency. And events over the last year concerning the sanctions the Americans and Europeans levied on the Russians have given, I think, an acceleration to these Chinese notions of the renminbi becoming global. Now, they've got a long, long way to go. But these are factors that I think thinking people have to be aware of and have to consider. You know, the United States has tremendous entrepreneurship. It has tremendous business innovation. And look at, for example, in the response to the 
to the COVID virus, coming up with these vaccines in record time. But this chronic problem where both parties are blissfully unaware of any kind of iceberg approaching as the Titanic sails along, this is a problem. Yeah, they'll all be um, out of office and picking up their retirement checks by then. Um, Last uh, few seconds, do you think uh, Biden is going to run again? He's not declared. His wife says he'll run, or maybe she'll run. But uh, what do you think about this this man being in his 80s by then actually running for president? You know, he's a career politician. He's only been a politician his entire life. He's a lawyer. He's 80 years old now. People want to talk from the right, the opposition, saying that the guy is, you know, fuddling, he's classic old man. But at the same time, look what he's yeah, done. If you li- li- in... lifestyle, you can't really stop it, can you? Well, he was just in Ukraine. He was just in Poland. He's been in California since he got back. Yeah, so he's, he's booming. Doing okay. Anyway, Barry, uh, be... thanks very much for that. Uh, right. Enjoy Sorry. your insight, and uh, we'll be speaking to you next week. Um, tomorrow's show, Andrew Work will be joined by the good doctor, investment strategist Enzio Unfile, and Nick Barrow of the Economist Intelligence Unit, and Ross Feingold will also be joining us too. Back Chat is next, uh, hosted by Janice Wong and Ginny Lamb. Have a great business day.